everybody. Uh, Andrew Smallwood here. Second Nature is proud to be in partnership with NARPM, the National Association of Residential Property Managers, uh, and RentBridge on hosting and producing an event called PM Leadership Exchange. In PM Leadership Exchange, it was a 9.9 out of 10. Last year, it was a highlight event for so many of you. If you're registered for PMLX, this is a bonus session that we're doing in advance. We're actually, we just found out going to have a bonus session after the event in September. Details to come on that, but a very exciting out of the industry speaker. We're excited to bring to you, uh, consistent with the caliber we've been bringing in. We're so stoked to have David Osborne here today. Um, so if you're registered for PMLX, you get access to these bonus sessions. A few of you also were able to register for this and may not know about PMLX. PMLX is an immersive event. We're running it August 24th, and 100% of the proceeds from the event are supporting NARPM's charity of choice, which is Meals on Wheels uh, for America. I know we've got Scott Abernathy on the call with us today, uh, and Scott is passionate about this this charity, he shared his passion with us and we are excited to support it as well. Last year, we were able to raise five figures uh, for last year's charity, Alexander Hamilton Scholars. And we've got a goal, you know us, like we're always saying, how can we do bigger and better next time? So we've got big goals this year to impact a great organization. And just by signing up and participating, you're contributing to that because 100% of the proceeds uh, go to charity and we'll have some cool things to raise some more money over the coming weeks for a great cause. Last thing is this, uh, we checked the other day and we were blown away, like over a hundred people registered for PMLX last week. And so I was saying, hey, we've got a couple hundred people registered for this. We now have over 300 uh, people registered for this event. If you're a NARPA member, tickets start a little under 50 bucks. You can bring your whole team for under a hundred bucks. If you're not a NARPA member, you'll probably have to spend a little bit more, maybe 50 bucks more. That's a benefit of being a NARPA member. And we've got about 14 tickets left where you're going to get what we call an attendee benefits package. So maybe, you know, RBP resident benefits package, attendee benefits package, just our play on that. We're like, Hey, we ship billions of boxes out to addresses per year. Let's, let's leverage that competency and send all of the conference attendees a fun package in advance or around the conference time. Uh, and so it's going to include an autographed book by Chris Voss, who's going to be speaking uh, August 24th. But the box is going to be incredible. It's basically worth the amount of your ticket uh, <laughs> in signing up. And so there's 14 of those left, I think, at my last count. So you'll want to make sure anybody who's not yet registered, that's a friend of yours in the industry, if they want that perk, that's going to sell out a little faster than last year. We'll continue having registration open a little while longer so people can still participate in the main event. With that, uh, we're going to bring David up. I have the pleasure of introducing David. And many of you saw a lot of his accolades and accomplishments and everything that was promoted in advance of this event. What I'd like to just do in personally introducing David, David and I share a lot of great mutual friends. Um, people like Hal Elrod, John Roman, many of you know from the end of last year, uh, John Berghoff, uh, who I think was helpful in making this connection, helping getting this set up. And, you know, when I think about David, what, a reason that we wanted to bring him in to speak is not just because he's so credible um, with what he's done with wealth building and teaching others how to build wealth, 
because of his connection and relevance in the real estate industry specifically. But a big reason is because David is somebody that as I've watched him and listened to him uh, and talked to friends about him, they are constantly complimenting his character. And words that often I've heard come up multiple times are things like heart-centered. David is a really heart-centered guy. Um, And I I think that you'll feel that, you know, in the way that David moves, moves through things. And he's very generously being here today. Uh, in contributing. It helps us uh, to raise money for the charitable cause. And I want to share a highlight moment from we had a fundraiser for the Front Row Foundation. Um, and not only did David speak, but he he matched donations. I, you might remember this, David, from uh, yeah. yep, San, San Diego. Yeah. And and totally not out of obligation, but just out of uh, out of generosity and out of his heart, he he matched donations from the participants. Um, in that event. And I mean, it blew everybody away. There were people that were moved to tears. It was such a a generous move and such a bold move. Um, But David's been doing things like that for for a long, long time uh, and helping a lot of of people in a lot of various ways. So David, we're so excited to have you here today. uh, And thanks for being with us. Andrew, it's great to be with you. That's a wonderful introduction, very thoughtful and, and heartfelt in and of itself. So it's great to be here. And if I can contribute to anyone on this call today, I'm honored to do my part in making all of us a little better and a little bit stronger together. So David, I'd like to start because some people, we actually found out there are some people who have read your book. I know David Sahar in our group, we saying like, I've read Wealth Can't Wait twice. Um, so I, w- I was glad to see some people are familiar with you and familiar with, with ideas that you've shared. But for those who are less familiar with you, could you tell us a little bit of your backstory of kind of how you got to here today? I feel like you've got some interest, an interesting background and kind of yeah. story and a little bit of how you got here. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm the son of a real estate agent and a Green Beret. So um, I had kind of the career paths that were obvious to me were joining the army or going into real estate. And I chose going into real estate, uh, but being military brat, I was raised, I was telling some the other day, I moved 10 times before I was 13. So I was just kind of bouncing around all the time, settled in Austin, Texas when dad retired. And um, yeah, so that was it. Dad kind of during Gulf war one, he said, son, you ought to sign up. There's nothing like being on the battlefield. And I said, Hey mom, you need to give me a job. Dad's trying to get me killed. So uh Ended up in real estate kind of in a long roundabout way, but I've lived in, you know, a bunch of different countries when I was younger and hitchhiked around the world for two years and kind of visited over 70 countries so far. I'm a big world traveler, but, you know, always comes back to real estate for me. And ultimately in real estate, um, I'm just shocked that more people don't own it. Like I was a, a C student in high school, I got asked to leave a couple of private schools and, you know, I'm probably not the guy that's going to build the next iPhone or cure cancer, but real estate is a pretty straightforward, you know, fundamentally sound thing to, 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 to invest in and oh, to build from. Um, yeah. So, you know, when I'm talking to property managers like you, that's, you know, the majority of the folks here, um, my question is always like, why don't you own more real estate? And, and so I started with Keller Williams in 1994 as an agent. I sold for two or three years and then I started opening brokerages and I ended up uh, building the eighth largest residential real estate company in the U S or, or serving the agents that helped me build that organization. And we sell 10 billion a year. And then 
uh, all along the line, I was investing in real estate and I just started a private equity firm uh, three years ago to invest in single family rentals. And we bought 530 homes over the last couple of years. I personally still own 120 rentals. And um, every single one of my homes is managed by a property manager. I don't, I don't manage a single one myself. I have great relationships with a bunch of property managers nationwide. We've done business in 41 states. And we're just raising our second fund, which will be $100 million in equity um, and $300 million total in assets. And we're going to probably deploy that in another 15 or 1,600 homes. So I absolutely love the space. Um, sticks and bricks make one plus one equal two and a quarter and repeat over a lifetime. Yeah. So David, um, you know, here's a question I would ask you. If we were to rewind before 120 single family homes that you, you own yourself and right. everything you, you've done, if we were to ri- rewind back to like the first home, uh, you know, purchasing those first couple of assets and talking a little bit about the professional property managers on this call, something I think they would benefit from is insight into how did you go you know, from like many of their clients who own one home, maybe two. And a lot of them are in a place of education and where their goals are of, man, they're seeing the sales market on fire right now. And they're mm-hmm. saying, man, I, I should just, I should just sell <laughs> and take, take, yeah. take a win. Like that's a lot of um, the people on this calls, their clients and what's going through their mind. And what do you think are the kind of mindset shifts that turn someone into a buy and hold investor like you um, and how might a professional property manager help educate their clients like that? Yeah. So I think there's not a single person on the Forbes billionaire list that doesn't have a billion dollars worth of assets. And one thing you'll notice about wealthy people, and I've studied, you know, wealthy people for a long time. I think uh, money always meant freedom to me. So I always wanted to be financially free. And Wealth Can't Wait covered it. Miracle Morning Millionaires covered it. But the, but the wealthy people own assets. And they generally aren't sellers. They're generally holders and buyers. And I kind of make it a mission to speak to three people that are, have a very high net worth uh, every year and kind of interview them and figure out what it is that got them there. And you know, the majority of people that have big wealth started a business. But the second most common trend is they just own real estate and never sold it. And funnily enough, I was talking to uh, the son of a billionaire recently when he runs a CFO family office and his parents are billionaires. And all they did, they were engineers that moved to uh, Silicon Valley in the 80s and they started buying single family rentals. They ended up with something like 90 or 100 of them. I know it's less than 120 because I told them I had 120. They said it's less than that. Um, And this is kind of like the outlier, the, the home run story. They stopped buying in like early 90s because they thought prices were too high, but they never sold. They held. And they have one home they bought for 127000 That's like a 13-acre orchard in downtown Atherton. If you haven't heard of Atherton, it's the highest dollar per square foot zip code in the United States of America, right near Silicon Valley. And they bought it for 127000 And they said today it's worth $18 million. No, fi- I'm sorry, $50 million. Oh my gosh, I got that was the second one. So the second one they bought, for 50,000 is worth 18 million. The first one they bought for 127,000 today is worth 50 million. It's the largest piece of undeveloped land in that area. 
And, and that's an example of buying and never selling. And, and they're all paid off. And just because they have that many and that high. Now, they have a family member who moved to Houston and did the same thing. And of course, that family member is probably worth 50 million, not a billion. That's the difference. But they also just acquired one property at a time over a period of time. And the other thing I noticed is even people that are not super wealthy, but are just financially free. A friend of mine, uh, you know, was a, was a cop and one of the other cops in the San Antonio police department, he took all his money and he just bought a rental property every you know few years when he can afford to buy one. And these were 60, 70, $80,000 homes. And when he retired, he had 12 paid for rental properties and he was making more from that than he was from his pension. You know, I have another story of a top realtor in California um, and his goal was just to have 10 paid for properties. And so he bought, you know, 10 properties around Orange County, paid them off. They didn't cash flow, but personally, I believe in positive cash flow always, which is why my homes are always in workforce housing areas. But he bought 10 and paid them off. And today, every one of those homes is worth over a million bucks. So he's probably worth 15, 18 million bucks just on those homes. Um, so it's a very tried, true, provable strategy for building wealth. So my first one, I was an agent. 95. So I was 27, 28 years old. And I'm just walking through this house. And I turned to the client after I looked at it, I said, Hey, do you want to buy this house? It happened to be my sister. Cause everyone knows when you first get into real estate, you sell all your relatives houses. Cause that's where your clients come from. And uh, she said, no, I don't like this house. I said, okay, great. I'm buying it. It was 77,000. I put down 20 grand. I bought it for 77,000. And then my goal was to buy 10 homes and pay them all off, right? Just like that other strategy that I told you about. But I moved slow. And I, this is one of my regrets. If I had to go back and do it over again, I could have bought a house every year, but I didn't. I bought one in 95. After living in it two years, I decided to go back to my apartment because I didn't like, I didn't have, you know, a family then. So I didn't like mowing the yard and managing that house. So I moved back into an apartment and turned it into a rental. So it effectively became an investment property in 1997. And then I don't think I bought another one until like 2000. So I, I wasted five years effectively before I bought my next house. Um, but then I bought a couple more. And then I went to this seminar and this guy taught me the difference between positive leverage and negative leverage. And I think it's very common that you start off with this idea of I'll just buy 10 homes, put them on a 15-year note and pay them off. So when you're asking like, what did you do that's that difficult or complicated? It really isn't that difficult or that complicated. It's just about taking action. Now in Austin, of course, today, you can't get a home for 77,000, but, you know, keep in mind that back then I was making 30,000. So, you know, the, your incomes have gone up hopefully, and also house pricing has gone up. And so this seminar, they said, okay, positive leverage is when you refinance a property and you make a higher return than you would have without the leverage and, and negative leverage is when you refi the property, take out cash and you make a lower return, meaning a percentage of the net income on equity, right? So I got that. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm a C student. I wasn't a genius, but I kind of got, okay, so paying them off isn't that sensible, especially as a young guy. Why don't I refi this property? By then it had gone up in value, I think, to 160,000. I mean, Austin's been really good, right? So this was about, you know, six years, five, six years later, maybe it's 130, but I remember I refied it and I took out 60 grand. And with that 60 grand, I went and bought three more properties with 20 grand down on each property. Now, unfortunately, I bought those ones in Lubbock, Texas, which uh, hasn't had the crazy Austin appreciation. But to this day, I have all four of those homes in a little microcosm of my total. And those four homes uh, today are worth about 600,000, maybe 700 now. 
And um, they're, they're all paid for. I put them all on 15-year notes because I followed that older philosophy back then. And I wanted to keep this as a microcosm. Actually, yeah, I'll, I'll get to another point in a minute. So I had them all paid for. I had 700000 in equity and they were cash flowing 2800 net a month. So I'm making 30-something thousand dollars a year on a $20,000 investment, not counting any net cash flows the entire time I was in it. So time, you know, one of my favorite quotes that I learned recently is, uh, real estate is not about the time you bought it. It's about the time you're in it. In other words, the longer you hold it, the better off this stuff does. And your tenants are basically paying off your note. I don't believe in negative cash flow, so I never bought anything that had negative cash flow. And that little thing was, I ran the numbers on that, not counting any positive cash flow over the life of those investments. So that was first bought in 95. Um, and then, you know, if you go to 2017 or something, let's say it's 20 years later, it was like making 17 or 18% every year on that 20 grand for it to get up to that number, which I think was 600 then. And uh, that's what real estate does for you, man. You don't have to be a genius. You just got to take action. Now, recently I, I refied that. So I just realized I have to modify my story because I had a hundred homes and I went to a facility and I refied the entire thing and took 8 million bucks out to go buy more assets. Um, but always with every asset I purchase, it's, it's and I, I know that I'm jumping scale. So as you go back, you know, when I started, you know, I had all those lack of knowledge that you, you don't have the knowledge when you start, right? So I'm just thinking, yeah, just have 10 homes, pay for them, and I'll live off the rental fee from that forever. Now I understand leverage a lot better. I've got more sophisticated. So I, I want my equity back to deploy into other things. But my fundamental philosophy of positive cash flow has never gone away. Also, I try to keep about 30% equity on average over time. And maybe not when I'm buying, like if you're starting out, you might have to have 5% equity. But there's never been a 10-year period in history where real estate's gone down. You know, there's, there was the 08 was terrible, but what happened by, you know, 15, 16 or where we are today, it all comes back. So the reason I don't want negative cash flow and the reason I'm not 100% debt is because I want to weather the storms. So and when the storms come, they can be violent or scary and things can drop. They drop faster than they go up. But they're also usually bound in about a two to four year window. So if you can just survive those two to four years, you come out better on the other side. And what I've seen in people that have gone bankrupt is they over leveraged and they had negative cash flow. And the people that I've seen that were able to have weather the storms, they're richer today than they were going into them. I knew a guy that had 12, you know, I would say the number 12, I think it's stuck in my head, but he had about a dozen rental properties in, uh, in Florida. And in the crash, he said, you know, I'm, I'm worth less on paper now than ever before, but my cash flow is better than ever because once all those people got foreclosed on in 08, they had to go become tenants. And that pushed rents up. And the other interesting thing about real estate is it's people think it's like this steady trend line from the left corner to the upper right, you know, but it's really not. It, it comes and goes in waves. Right now, we're in an upward wave where real estate is going up very quickly and very strongly. But there's a lot of periods where it's flattish and doesn't do that much, just kind of bounces along a slightly upward trend line. And then there's the drops that occur. And the drops are, um, you know, the drops are precipitous and they can be scary. But I don't see the ingredients that we had last time. Like I kind of expected a downturn in 03 and 04 last time. And there was definitely signs by 05 and 06 that things were really hot. And the things, the thing, you know, the signs were you'd get in your car and your taxi driver would have bought three houses with no money down, right? Or and a realtor would go to Vegas. I remember she bought eight condos, no money down. And that was the sign of the superheat. So where do you start? You know, 
if you're going to eat an elephant, you start one bite at a time. And the bite is to own an asset. It can be the home you live in. The other, the other strategy that I'm a big fan of is never sell a home you've lived in. I've never sold a single home I've lived in. Um, I did try to sell my last home, but what people don't may not remember is 2018 was pretty soft. And I was try, trying to sell my home for 1.2 million in Austin, Texas. And I thought it was a good price. I thought I'd priced it low. In my head, I had it worth 1.4. Um, but no one bit. And then after about six months or four months, somebody said, Hey, I want to rent it from you for two years for 6,000 a month. I was like, okay. So that brings us forward to today. His lease is just coming up and, um, or just came up and the rent's gone up to 10,000 a month. And that house is probably now worth one, six, one, seven. And I, I was going to sell it just cause it has a pool and it's kind of on a cliff and it's a little bit high maintenance. But now I'm kind of thinking, you know, I bought it for 850 or 900 and I might just keep it as a, if I can get 10 a month on an 850, 900 investment, you know, it kind of it pencils out on paper based on the rules that I follow for, for positive cash flow. So I may just keep it now. Um, but yeah, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. And the way you start is you just start, you know, you, you can buy outside of the city, you can buy you know, further away, if you need a lower price point, like lower price point today is probably 250. It's not 77 anymore. And, um, you just got to start, man. You got to, and, and everyone can qualify. So just start. Hmm. Man, I know if I, if I ask people to put in the comments, has this been good so far? <laughs> We've already had people who couldn't wait uh, to say this has been good, David. Thank you so much. You know, a couple things that stood out were, you talked about timing the market versus time in market. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that being a critical mental shift, you know, for some of these people who are newer to the game of how, how do you think less about trying to time the market and more about your time in the market that um, amongst a bunch of things that you covered that stood out to me as something that the people on this call will want to help shift. And I think you shared some just great stories that they can, can we have your permission to, to reuse some of those stories in conversations? Of course. Uh, of course. So yeah, and, I try to be as will... much of an open book as possible. Try to be as transparent as possible. And, you know, everybody's helped me. So I, anyone I can help, like, I think a great community is a, a community of successful people. Like a great country is a country of successful people. We should want everyone near us, beside us, around us to succeed at the highest level. It's, you know, I've got a bunch of wealth people that are friends that are mine that are wealthier than me. And guess what? I get to go hang out at their beautiful houses and see their, you know, travel with them on their beautiful planes. And it's just like, there's just a, a really good thing about abundance. Um, and instead of like trying to tear people down in life, I think we should all be trying to lift one another up and the higher we all go, the better. Um, but yeah, so time in real estate is key. And the, and the way you don't get killed by time is by never having negative cash flow. You always want to have the positive cash flow because that gives you survivability, you know? Yeah. Critical points. Hey, we had a couple of questions. Uh, Mark Brower, if you don't mind, will bring you up to actually ask David a couple of follow-up questions. And then David will move to a different topic after this. Hey, David, thanks so much for being here. Yes, sir. Did you always have the money you needed for your acquisitions or did you, in your first hundred properties, how often did you partner on the equity piece? Uh, Follow-up question would be, isn't there a cap on the number of Fannie Freddie conforming loans you can have? And how did you get around that? Yeah. So those are two great questions. So first off, 
I say I have 100 properties. Keep in mind, I bought most of them in the crash. So going into the crash, I might have had a dozen. So when was the crash? 08. So from 95, when I first bought till 08, I'd probably picked up 12 properties. Um, and every one of those I bought with my own money, my own money down. And most of them were, you know, they were in Lubbock. They were in uh, Mississippi. They were just $100,000 houses that I would scrape together 20 grand at a time and I'd buy a house. So over that 12 year, and I never went in the stock market or anything like that. I just kind of went direct um, into my own investments. I, I, I got kind of burned in the dot-com crash and that kind of cured me of wanting to invest in things I couldn't control and understand. Um, so, and then on the limit, so, so that, that the, the 12 were with my own money. Now, the reason I'm doing a fund now of a hundred million is cause I don't have enough of my own money and I've done plenty of syndications and deals. And if you don't have the money, I, I, you know, money always goes to the deal. So if you become an, a, a pretty good deal guy, like a, an expert at like looking and analyzing a property, which by the way, doesn't take sophisticated math. I got a C in calculus or pre-calc in uh, college. So I wasn't that good at advanced math, but all you got to do is figure out, you know, I got a thousand a month rent coming in and rent. I got 400 a month in expenses on top of that. My PITI is going to be another 300 a month and I'm going to net $300 a month. Right. So that's, it sounds quick, but it's really not sophisticated math. So if you can present a deal to people where they're going to make, you know, 10, 12, 8% cash on cash with maybe a 15 total return, you can always find money. Um, I invest in a bunch of deals with guys now, but, in, but when I needed money and when I need money, I still take my deals to market. I did a $10 million equity deal with a guy recently and he put in four and a half and I put in four and a half and we got another guy in at 500, just who's a billionaire, just because I wanted him to see what we had capable of doing. Um, so, and it's an 18% almost guaranteed return unless the economy completely collapses uh, because the, 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 the guy, actually his return profile was 25%. And we said, we just want 18, but we'll take the first 18. So we kind of locked in the prep. Um, so my point is, and I'm getting a little lost there in details is if you become really good at finding deals, you'll always find a way to find the money. And at first it'll be your neighbor and your buddy and your friend. Um, but then over time, it'll be more sophisticated, higher level investors if you choose to go that far, or if you can just keep using your money, that's easier and better. And then on the, on the, on the loan limits thing, yeah, you're allowed 10 with Fannie Freddie, but what we found is we'd go to community banks and like, so once I got it to 26 properties, I had, a, I had about 16 of them in, in, uh, in Mississippi and I had a local community bank and the, and the community bank gave me one prop, one loan on all 16 properties. And then I had commercial insurance policy on that too. So if you go to local community banks, they have more accessibility. And now that I have a hundred, there's actually facilities. Genesis is one out of California. They're a little bit more expensive. I think Corvest is the one we ended up going with. So there, there's just this process. So, you know, let's say having a hundred homes is a level four investor. And let's say there's 10 levels, a level in one investor could be just having one property, right? So that's where you start. So until you get to 10, you may as well use that Fannie Mae, Freddie money, Freddie money, you know, that you just use that because it's the easiest and most straightforward to get. You build up your portfolio to 10 and then you're like, okay, now let's start talking to community banks about adding more or taking on more. Um, capital is always out there. And then the ones I'm using now, Corvest, and they're, they're uh, kind of like Wall Street type money, I would call them facilities. And then in my fund, we went to, a, uh, we went to a, a reinsurance company and they gave us $50 million for the fund. So we raised $32 million in equity. They gave us a $50 million note. And, and, and we'll do the same with this $100 million in equity. So 
you just climb the eco- everything is about climbing these ladders of awareness. And the first ladder of awareness doesn't show up until you buy a property. And then you learn the headaches, the ins and outs of managing a property. And then you, you, if you just stick with the program, that's why I say it's like eating an elephant one bite at a time. It doesn't really matter where you go. You get to 10 and then you're like, okay, I need more capital. So you start discovering where to find the capital and how to manage all these properties. And, you know, at first I tried to manage my properties myself and I found I was a disaster at that too. So that's where I started using just property managers. Everywhere I go, I use with every single property in my fund, which is unusual, by the way. So with the fund, I have to kind of explain to our capital sources. Uh, But everywhere we go, we use a property manager for a couple of reasons. Also, because the property managers not only take care of them and do a good job for us. And by the way, if they don't, we'll find another one because there's some great property. There's a lot of bad property managers out there, as you guys know, but there's also a lot of great ones. Uh, but also they bring us deals like a lot of times, and you know, you guys are on this call. If any of you guys know a client that wants to sell, but you want to keep the property management for yourself, we'll buy it and we'll keep it with you. So we bought three last month from a property manager that, you know, just had had clients that were ready to sell. And, um, and we just, we bought them and we keep them with that property manager. So we find the property managers, if, if they're great ones, not only save us money and do a great job of managing and releasing the property, but they also uh, bring us deal flow. Um, but going back to what you you said, or you know, one of Andrew's questions earlier, like I don't believe you should ever sell if you if you're not forced to. So yes, things are hot right now. You feel like you could take some money off the table. I would encourage anyone listening or you to tell your clients, don't sell it, just refi it, pull out some cash, and go do what you want with that cash or buy something else. But the only way you win in the world of economics is by having assets that appreciate while you're sleeping. And, and that's the only way you win at any kind of a scale in the wealth building game. And it could be stocks, it could be bonds, it could be a business you own, um, or it could be real estate. But what I love about real estate is it's straightforward, it's simple. There's been more millionaires created in real estate than any other place in the history of time. So um, I think I answered your questions. You did. Uh, one follow-up question. You talked about weathering the storm and when there's those two to four year downturns, I assume you know having really good um, financing terms helps with that. When you get beyond Fannie and Freddie with the 30-year fixed mortgages uh, or 15-year fixed mortgages, when you're in those community bank markets or other sources, is it typical to see shorter, you know, five, 10-year balloons? How do you manage that? Yeah, so that's a great question. So first off, let's go to, I don't do 15-year notes at all anymore. I did it early. It made sense to me early. Now I do 30. I want the the lowest payment I can possibly have. And then I'll make an extra payment. If I feel like paying it off early, I'll make one extra payment a year. But there's really the difference between 15 and 30 is just that you have a higher payment. You know, sure, you get a little bit of a principal advantage on a 15. But right now, I'm so one of my strategies is to keep the actual payment as low as possible so that I can weather those storms. And then secondly, um, with... uh, with the, uh, and then make the extra payment, I guess, is my point. Yes, it costs you a little, but it really doesn't cost you very much. If you feel like paying it off early, make an extra payment a year, and it becomes like an 18-year loan instead of a, a 30-year loan. Um, and then on the, uh, the community banks, yeah, you, they have different balloons, and they usually charge you different interest rates. They'll do non-recourse, um, and you just pay a higher interest rate. So it's all negotiable, but generally, they'll offer three, five, seven, or 10-year balloons, and just like all of that, it's cheaper to get the three-year balloon than the 10-year, but I generally go with a 10-year. Again, I'm trying to kind of lock in my predictable future. Um, so it's way better to have a 30-year fix because then it's predictable for 30 years, but 10 years is a pretty good length of time. So I'm pretty comfortable with the seven or the 10. 
remember the biggest debtor of debt in the world is the U.S. government. And they also set the price of their debt. So in my entire career, there's been a downward trend in real estate interest rates. And, I, you know, I think that continues until such a point as, as it becomes unsustainable, then we're probably all in trouble. But the, uh, the Japanese have 200% debt to their GDP, and I don't see why America couldn't either. I'm not a fan of this. I'm not in any way advocating massive irresponsible spending, but I'm saying the government borrows the most and they set the price for what they borrow at. It's very unlikely that unless they're forced to, they're going to raise interest rates. And in my 30-year career now, uh, rates have trended downwards. Uh, same is true of Japan. You'd think, well, they owe more than they've ever owed. Yeah, but their rates are the lowest they've ever been. So again, I'm not saying you should take that to the bank and guarantee it, but I'm pretty comfortable with 10-year or seven-year fixed on a balloon. Um, and so far, it's never come back to bite me. But you know, life's always full of surprises and things like that. Mark, great questions. Um, cool. Mark, thanks for jumping up and jumping in. David, thanks for taking the questions on the fly. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. My pleasure. So I want to move you know, the next direction, talking a little bit more about, you know, what's in your books and what are the kind of wealth traps, you know, that you see people commonly get into. If we shift from, hey, just the mindset of the clients I serve, the people trying to become real estate investors, and a lot of that's helpful here, people can use what you talked about for themselves as well. But in building wealth for themselves, I feel like you've got you know, just a great way of thinking and seeing opportunities and how you show up, up to this versus some of the traps that people get, get into. Could you speak to that a little bit next? Yeah, sure. I mean, the number one trap for everyone is misequating income with wealth. So people tend to think income is wealth. So you got to raise, you're making 100, now you're making 110, you feel like you're winning. You're not winning. You feel, you know, you're making, you're making 60. Now you're making 70. You're making 200. Now you're making 300. You're not winning at all. There's no winning in an increase in your income. You just get the right to pay higher taxes and have a more lavish lifestyle for sure. You can drink the hundred dollar bottle of wine instead of the $20 bottle of wine, but you're still just drinking wine. You can stay at the $500 a night hotel instead of the hundred dollar hotel, but it's still just a bed with a pillow. And so, um, I'm not saying it's not more comfortable, but people misequate income with wealth. And the only way you build wealth is to have assets and that, you know, and these assets that appreciate over time. And so, you know, there's something called the cushy job trap where people are just caught, they're getting paid well, they live a good life, they get married, they have two kids, they're making good money, and they don't ever really think about their wealth. And so they put away a little bit in their 401k and they put a little bit away in their pension or whatever comes naturally or social security. And they take no real time to step out of their circumstances because it's not that hard. Building wealth isn't hard. It's no harder than what you do on a daily basis, but nobody puts consciousness on it. They certainly don't teach it anywhere. So no one's like in high school saying, hey, here's why you should be wealthy. No one in college is generally teaching you, you know, here's how to be wealthy. If you're in dental school, they don't teach you how to run a business. They teach you how to manage teeth. If you're a doctor, if you're an engineer, if you're a a weight person, but all of these people in every career, there's a janitor that donated 8 million. We put it in one of our books to his, his alma mater when he died. Right. So here's a janitor that built up 8 million in wealth. Now he did it through stocks, which is a little different, but, but, but it's available to everybody. It's just never taught. So you have to go find it. Um, so the, the cushy job trap is one, uh, 
the toxic people trap is another one. Like you, proximity is power. So whoever you hang out with the most is who you're going to become like. And I certainly, you know, so I gather deals and I gather people. And, and I'm in a group right now in the other room of a high net worth investor group. And I consciously choose continuously to join groups and be part of groups where I can be around people that are up to big things because you kind of suck that in through osmosis. If your favorite four people drink beer and watch sports all weekend, the odds are, or play video games all weekend. And I was a gamer, by the way, so I, I know what that's like you're likely to play video games all the time or watch sports. But what I found is you can actually make your life like a Super Bowl for yourself or like a video game for yourself. And then then what my life is, is is this kind of climbing these different levels, if you will, of, of financial freedom, but also health of being a good father, of being a good husband, of contributing to my community. So I kind of gamify in a way all of life. And for that proximity is power. So I'm attracting deals but I'm also attracting people of the highest caliber. If you were, you know, one of the things that was really helpful for me early on in my career was to hang out with a guy called Pat Hyben. And I met Pat Hyben in 1997 and he was a real estate agent out of Maryland. And he was also committed to financial freedom. And what I found is I could listen to all the speakers in the world telling me why I should own real estate or why you should have time in real estate and why you should have negative cash flow. And that was all great. But watching Pat buy his first six homes you know, like quicker than I did, kind of that inspired me. I was like, well, that guy, if that guy can do it, he's no brighter than me. He's no smarter than me. And if he's doing it, I can sure as hell do it. So proximity, I think being at a part of a club and being with people that are actually up to good things and are making stuff happen forces you to then become the same kind of person just because of that proximity. Um, yeah. So in my books, we cover a lot of this, but you know, there's a lot of, the miracle morning is a great one. You know, I wrote miracle morning millionaires with how, but miracle morning is the, the granddaddy of those books. And, and, you know, what your world looks like, in my opinion, is a representation of who you are. So, you know, spending as much time as possible on personal development um, to me is like as important as finding the deals and finding the people. So, you know, with that, like I, I start my mornings with a meditation, by the way, I've got, I'm a terrible meditator. Um, but I have all the apps and I use whichever I have calm. I have uh, insight timer. I have 10% better, which is a book I just read. That was great called 10% better, um, uh, happier, 10% happier. Uh, look at how I twisted that to better. Uh, and then there's another one that I love called waking up. Right. So I just flip around. I do a 10 minute meditation because I'm trying to constantly get at peace internally so that I can allow better and bigger and greater things to come in. And one of the biggest negatives in life that people get trapped in is gossip, right? And gossip is when you're talking about like politics or who's doing this or who did that or pro-choice, pro-abortion, pro-this, pro-that, or anti-this or anti, and you get caught in this like drama wheel that's outside of yourself. So instead of living your agenda and your purpose for your life and your family, you're caught up in like something else or who won the Super Bowl or who's the better sports team. Is it the Dallas Cowboys or is it the Chicago Bears? And you can actually, there were people that waste like significant portions of their lives on these drama filled things, or it could just be who did what at the office They're, and they waste significant portions of their lives on these drama filled things that they can't control and can't influence, but it's super addictive. I mean, I don't judge people for it. It's addictive and it's connecting, right? So if you have drama, you feel alive and inspired and connected. And it happens so much in politics where people are adamant, you know, they're adamant about their position and, and they like get shaped by this energy around who's in office, but 
that person in office doesn't send you a paycheck. That person in office doesn't care about your kids. I mean, they might in a big generic sense of the word. There's no one that's ever won a Super Bowl that sent me a card saying, hey, I noticed you bought that property. Good for you. Let me encourage you to keep going. You know, what, what matters to me is you take authorship of your life. You make your life the biggest election ever. You make your life the biggest Super Bowl ever. And I'm not saying you ignore that other stuff. You do your part. You do your civic duty. You vote. You try to get educated. But the, but the amount of energy people waste on gossip or non things that are outside of their control is phenomenal. Um, if you just take that energy back and apply it to your life and, and proximity is power as part of that. And, and, you know, who you're around really matters and doing your miracle morning and getting centered and having your visualizations and setting your goals and being clear on what's purposeful for you. Uh, people that know me well know that I write out about 80 goals a year and I'm pretty obsessive about it. By the way, I used to be terrible at accomplishing my goals too. I used to write them down and then never do any of them. But now I, one thing I added to my goals that's really been effective was originally to read my goals 50 times a year. And if you saw my goal journal, I track it up and I mark it all up. And now it's a hundred times a year. So I'm looking at my goals at least twice a week and reminding myself of everything I said I was going to do. And just like when you say you're going to buy a new Lexus or a new Toyota or whatever, a new Ford or a new Tesla, I guess, to be trendy and timely, you see them all over the place, right? Everyone, this happens to everyone. As soon as you, if you, if you, and this is from Think and Grow Rich, but if you said today, I'm going to find a quarter and you obsessed with finding a quarter and you walked around looking at the ground, finding a quarter, the odds of you finding a quarter are extremely high. I've tested it before. I haven't done it in a while, but you, you just think about a penny, think about a nickel, whatever you think about, you tend to attract to life. When you think about buying a certain car, you see that car all over the place. And that's what I'm encouraging people to do with their goals. Like write those goals down, think about them, pay attention to them and make your life become the Super Bowl that you choose to live in and compete in every day. And I think that's the, the mindset piece is so important. And people always say mindset, sh mindset. They hate the idea of this mindset, but the truth is who you are is represented in your life every single day. And if you don't shift who you are, then you're going to keep getting the same thing over and over again. And, and that's fine. It could be beautiful. It could be wonderful, but don't do the same thing over and over and expect different results. You're going to get the same results. David, you cover so much. It makes me just want to say, what else should we talk about? And just, <laughs> I feel like we're going to hear uh, 12 minutes of just wisdom one after another. I, I want to reflect back something you just said that I feel like was, was really important. A couple of things. So one was, you know, finding people around you that share your goals, that push you to be better, that, you know, you create that kind of tribe around you. And, and I want to acknowledge uh, the people who are on this call, you know, in, in the kind of communities that we support, whether that's NARPM, the PM exchange group, et cetera, you know, a lot of you are doing that and, and would encourage you to go, go further and deeper to find specific people you can connect with. Like you talked about your friend, Pat, uh, who you connected with. Um, second was you mentioned personal development being not just, um, having a desire for it, but having a practice for it. And you talked about meditation, a, a morning routine, like the miracle morning, you know, shares and how powerful that can be and how transformative that can be. And that was really great. Um, and then at the end here, you know, I feel like everyone can relate to, um, you know, w when, if you drive a certain car, right, you start seeing that car around the <laughs> all the time. And you, you, you know, it was there before, but you didn't see it before. And that opportunities can be the same way. And it seems like an important practice you have is as opposed to drama kind of filling a, a void, you, you've got, 
you've gotten off of drama and onto filling your life with clarity and purpose around here are my goals. Here's what I'm working on. Here's the life I'm building. And when you've got that clear and you're revisiting it consistently, you're seeing opportunities more clearly, more apparently that otherwise you might've overlooked if you were uh, thinking about something else or distracted by something else. Is that, am I catching what you were, uh, you were dropping there? Yeah, you can absolutely manifest abundance in my experience of life. And if you go around thinking of everything that's wrong, you're going to constantly see what's wrong and find more of what's wrong. And if you instead look for what's right and look what's possible, then you're going to go around and see what's right and what's possible. And and the way that makes it easier to do that is to hang around with people that are seeing the same thing. Um, You know, so if you hang around with a motivated group of people, and they're inspiring, and they're doing the right thing, you will become that person. Humans are so much like clay. It's unbelievable. Like I see it in myself, you know, like I'm a very disciplined person. I go to Mexico with a week for a week with my family and I don't work out. I, I eat badly. I drink margaritas every single day. And I'm like, wow, why is this? Cause this is my environment now. And this, this just became my environment and it's fine. And you know, I'm, I'm certainly not overly obsessed with being a perfectionist, but when I'm there, that's, that's the reality. And I think, wow, that's, that's that. And then when I pull back out of that, I get back home, I get back to working out and hit my meditation routine in the morning before the kids wake up and everything else. So my life really is all about this. Like, so the wealth is great. The wealth is a byproduct, but the number one thing I've done my entire life is work on me as a human being. And, and a lot of that is in letting in the good stuff and eliminating the bad stuff. Um, and a lot of it is knowing you don't know, like to me, like, I know, I don't know. This is like such a liberating concept, right? Like there was, when I was younger, I remember I felt more passionate about someone. I was talking to a 20 year old the other day and he was telling me everything right and wrong with the world. And I was trying to be encouraging and supportive. I was actually in a coffee shop trying to work, but he just started talking to me. So I tried to be present to him and like find out and ask my heart what I could do to serve this person. But he was going on and off all these all these uh, rants. And I, I remember being more that way, but now that I'm older, I know, I don't know. You know, I, I heard a guy say recently, I thought it was great. He said, there's two things that I, I know. One is I don't know. And the second thing is I know more than you. Now that wasn't me quoting. That was that guy. And I was like, you know, as soon as you know, you don't know, it's super liberating because it creates all this space. You don't have to tell people anymore what's going on, what's right, what's wrong, what's good about COVID, what's bad about COVID, what's good with the vaccine, what's bad with the vaccine. You can actually just let all that go and leave it to other people. You can leave it to God or society or the government we chose to elect. And then you can take that energy back and you can apply it to your life and you can apply it to your vision for what you're trying to accomplish and I really believe the more energy you put into that, the more fruitful your life becomes. And all of us are constantly distracted by this, that, and the other, our opinions. And that's all fine. I, I am too. Like, I'm not implying that I'm somehow like different, but I don't hold on to it very long. And I don't give myself too much importance in my opinions, you know, and I, because what's fun, funny is you'll rant on something like a belief you have about whether taxes should be low. And then, but the more you kind of meditate and get centered and realize you really don't actually know, um, it's kind of liberating. Then you see other people you're doing it. You're like, Oh, I can kind of see that in them. Now they're like ranting about something that they don't really know. Like vaccines is a good one. Cause who the heck understands what's in a vaccine and they're a pro vaccine and anti-vaccine people, but you don't understand. I don't understand. I read a bunch of articles too. I don't understand COVID. I don't understand that. I don't understand debt. Like the trillions of dollars worth of debt. So why would I spend my energy trying to 
make an opinion on something I don't fully understand when I can just liberate that. Cause I can, I can tell you what I do understand. I understand helping my daughter, you know, in on her path in life, becoming a better, you know, if she chooses to do pickleball or tennis or just wants to play with me in the swimming pool, being really present to that, that I can control and make a difference. in. I can, I can really see the difference I get out of my kids when I spend time with them where I'm present and I enjoy them. I can see the difference I get from my wife when I'm really conscious to being a good husband and, and approaching her with that, you know, that sensibility. So yeah, I, I, I've, and, and it happens more and more. So I know I'm ranting a little bit here, but really as I've gotten older, I've dropped more and more crap that is outside of my control and outside of my awareness and understanding. And it's given me a blessing of more and more energy. And it seems like my wealth and my life and my happiness and my health has all improved as I've worked on myself. Mm -hmm. David, I want to ask a question. And then I know we've got a couple of questions in the chat and we'll, we'll have a little time to take a couple of these maybe quick um, before, before you have to go. My next question is there's, there's people in this group who I think share an aspiration that, you know, you, you've been walking this kind of path and the language I would put on it is, you know, you just mentioned this, how you've dedicated yourself to not just building wealth, but becoming a better dad. And I know you're part of a, a group that's focused on that. You're talking about this advice. It's consistent across the different roles that you play, but you're, you're a great dad uh, by many people's standards, a great year. You focus on being a great spouse. And then, you know, I, I believe you're this kind of person who's what I would call a community pillar, you know, and you're somebody who invests and cares about the communities that you're a part of, and you're a leader in those kind of communities. You're an inf influential person, you know, in those kind of communities. Uh, and I know that's how many of our friends see you. And so I, I think a lot of people share that aspiration and goal that are on with us today. And, you know, what would you tell them either what stories or lessons learned or what are the kind of things you think um, would help somebody who has that goal of being a pillar in their community or being an uh, influential person in the communities that they're a part of? I think it just goes back to what we've been talking about. I think, you know, again, for any small influence I have on my community or other people, uh, which is an honor and a blessing. Uh, and you're talking about Front Row Dads Foundation with John Vroman, which is such an amazing group of people. Um, but ultimately, like, it's, it's going to sound repetitive. It's the same thing. I didn't go into life trying to be a pillar of my community. I didn't I didn't come into it that way. I actually was a bit of a rebel without a clue in school. So I got thrown out of, you know, three high schools. They were private schools. So it was very easy to get thrown out of a private school. Uh, my dad was a very tough green beret, but after I got thrown out of the third ones, the only time I ever saw him cry, normally he just threatened me, but that time he just cried. I was like, Oh my God, I don't know what to do with this kid. Um, but really I, I, I was, I was anti-establishment. And then I think God in, in his or her great wisdom decided to make me the establishment. So so, but really the, the only, any influence or positive impact I have on people is because I've worked so hard on myself. So I craft, I work, what's right, what's wrong. Is that vanity? Is it truth? I try to drop my BS stories. I try to be really, really real and authentic about what is and what isn't true. And that's where I've come to these conclusions of how little I know. I'm like, yeah, definitely. If you went back 20 years and found me in my thirties, I was way more opinionated about what I thought was right. You know, but it's like my oldest daughter, who's a therapist, taught me about white privilege. And at first I was offended. You know, I was like, I had a pretty tough life. 
But then as I really did some soul searching and looked into it, and I'm not going to get lost on politics, trust me, I'm still pretty center. But I did realize like it was way easier to be a white male in America than most other people, right? It's also way easier to be a male entrepreneur than a female entrepreneur. Like it's harder to be a woman because some guys just dismiss them. I've been in meetings before with my wife, who's actually in charge of a lot of things for us, where the guy will only talk to me. And I'm like, I wish you'd talk to my wife because she's actually the one that's going to make the decisions on what we do with this project, right? So I think, you know, that's an awareness that it's really hard to accept that if you were punched a lot and kicked around and you're thinking, man, I fought my way up here. Then you have to really look at it as, you know, one thing I'd say about my dad is he was really tough on us, but he cared a lot about our education. He put money and resources behind our education. I've met some guys, you know, in, in my work with charities and stuff that their dad didn't give a crap about them. They were raised by Nintendo. They didn't even have to go to school. So suddenly you grew up and you're 20 years old and you've never been to college and you barely know how to read and write. That is an underprivileged human being. And, and I just think that awareness has been, has really softened me and made me more of an accepting and loving person, but I'm also very committed to doing my part. Right. So I, I try not to, you know, of course there are times I blitz out with a margarita or doing something I enjoy like a movie, but generally speaking, I'm not checking out of life with entertainment or with, you know, I get my entertainment, but, but I'm actively participating in my evolution in my life. And I do that through setting my goals and holding myself accountable to those goals and trying to make a difference. And even when I'm sitting in that coffee shop trying to work and some random 20 year old kid is yapping to me, I don't shut him down. I ask myself, what is this kid wanting and needing right now? Like what's, what can I do for this kid? Like what, what, and I, by the way, he was irritating me quite a bit, Andrew. So it was really testing my capacity for compassion. Um, he was a good kid. He meant well, he just, was ranting. So I, I talked to him and, you know, I gave him some time and then I said, Hey, I got to go. My wife wants me. And that's how I got out of there. But he, uh, he asked me for a hug. So I gave him a hug and left, but that's an example of like everything that shows up in my life. I try to ask myself, why is this here? And how can I be of service to this person or this moment or whatever this need is? And I think if you just work on yourself, you end up becoming a pillar of the community because a lot of people check out and choose not to do that. And I think the world is hungry for leadership and hungry for people that stand up and own their own space. Uh, but I certainly did not intend to be, I was the youngest of three and I just wanted to have freedom and survive. And I didn't intend on being a pillar of the community, but, it, but you know, life has a, God has a funny sense of humor. <laughs> Man. I, and I see some people chime in the comments, how they appreciate what you just shared. Um, here's what I want to do. I think, Two things. One, we're going to bring Brad Randall up if we can, Tyler Nichols. Uh, he's got a quick question for you, David, which will kind of bring things full circle. And then maybe a fun request uh, that Laura Mack just shot me, Laura McMahon, who I think you know, know pretty well. Brad, there he is. Brad, go ahead with your question. Thank you so much, Andrew. And thank you, David, for taking time today. Um, as a as an owner that works with a lot of different PMs, you've done this on your own, you've worked with PMs. Most of us are running, managing PM companies. What would you say are some of the key differentiators as you work with PMs that you just say, you know, this is what sets, here are some things that set apart the type of PMs that we like to work with. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here, Brad. And you look way more comfortable than me. In fact, I wish I could be laying, you know, on a pillow 
Um, so yeah, I think, and first off my team now mostly works for the PMs, but for sure it's communication, right? It's just clear communication, prompt payment of the rent, uh, prompt releasing or explanation as to why it's not releasing. It's just communication. Now, when we work with PMs, we give them a, a, a series of systems and processes we want them to abide by. We have a pretty sophisticated team now, not, but most of it wasn't built with, by me, um, but it's always that, you know, are you quick? Are you communicating? Are you taking care of the repairs quickly? Are you giving good feedback versus, you know, passively just rolling along and waiting for me to ask, hey, where's my rent check this month? Or, you know, what's going on with that client? Or why aren't we leased? You know, um, so I think in everything, pretty much communication is number one. Performance is probably number one. But, you know, people say it's about performance, but communication is what really matters. Um, and uh, if you want to email me, you can reach me at david at davidosborne.com. I'll, I'll ask my team to give you some answers to that as well. Because I actually now have a team of people that handle, manage all my properties. I actually had two of those homes in love at once. I didn't get paid a check for six months and I didn't notice it. That's how busy I was back. You know, this is when I had four homes. And then I, I was just working like 80 hours a week or whatever, as hard as I could, 70 to 80 hours a week. And I remember suddenly checking my thing one day and realized I had never received a check from two other properties for six months. And when I called the property manager, they were like, oh, it wasn't leased. But I, I still to this day believe it was. And they were just keeping my checks. So I fired them and hired somebody else. So that's a really bad thing to do. If you're a property manager, you should definitely pay your owners uh, their, their rent checks. That's great. Thank you much. Yes, Brad. Thank you, sir. Brad, thanks for your question. And David, we'll follow up and uh, so everybody can benefit from, uh, from the answers that Matt and your whole team uh, would be able to share there. That's really great. Hey, as a, as a final thing here, before we move people into an activity, uh, you know, for, the, for closing this out, uh, Laura Mack said, could it be an idea to ask David to share a couple of things from his goal journal? I'm not sure if you have it handy or if, if you read it 50 oh, times, if you got a couple things top of mind you could share. Well, first some off, people are I, curious. I, I so wish that I had it with me, but it's in this other room and I'm in a meeting right now with a bunch of guys and I left it. But if you saw my goal journal, you would see eight gardens of life and I color each title differently. I want it to look very pleasant. I'm going to look at that piece of paper a hundred times a year. So I really want it to be interactive. In fact, if you guys email me again at david at davidosborne.com, I'll send you the blank template. Um, my team always gets irritated with me when I give out my email, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and so then I have my eight gardens and my eight gardens would be relationship. And I always start with relationship. Honestly, when I was building my life, my wife has been with me 20 years, but I was pretty terrible as a boyfriend. And, um, I would be amazing one day and then terrible the next, depending on how hard I was working. So I want her to be in the front seat of my car all uh, always. And I really try to make her number one. And so that would be a certain amount of family goals, like time with her, date nights, a trip every year, time with my kids. There's something we follow called the family boardroom, which is uh, four hours with a kid uninterrupted once a month with no electronics. They get to choose whatever they want to do. So we try to do that every month. Physical, which you can guess, intellectual or personal growth, which you can guess. Some interesting things I have is one of them is lifestyle goals. 
And what I found is early on, I didn't reward myself enough. So I actually had a burnout experience at about age 31, got shingles, got stressed and kind of had a mini breakdown. And one of the things I realized is I was just working and not rewarding. So it's kind of like having a, a dog that you're never playing with. That was me. I was my own dog. So what I realized is I have to add like a trip every year or like having a nice car or something to look forward to. Uh, environment or tribe is one of my six, eight gardens. And that means who do I hang out with? Like I've cultivated relationships. I got a new friend with a billionaire in town called Joe Lonsdale. He has a killer podcast called American Optimist. He moved out of California to Austin, Texas, and he runs a bunch of private equity funds. So check out American Podcast, which is a real, American Optimist, which is a really cool podcast. But what I like about Joe is he's kind of a uh, libertarian sort of positive mindset. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, outward going guy. And um, he's got a really healthy view of America, like some you know, really positive outlook on the future. Um, so that would be a tribe and who you hang out with and your environment. Like I try to do one crazy, scary thing every year just to test myself. It doesn't have to be dangerous, but I did the Downeyville downhill. I climbed Kilimanjaro, climbed Mount Whitney, go scuba diving with sharks. So every year I try to do something that tests my, my level of awareness because you crack you get really set in your way. So you want to crack that level of awareness. And then the last two would be my financial goals, which would be saving money and investing. And then my career or business goals, because I have a lot of businesses, it breaks down to about 10 different things on the business goal side. But those are the eight gardens of life for me. And I'm very, and when I complete a goal, I highlight it. And the ones that have like 240 workouts, I strike those. I want to do a hundred yogas. So you'll see a yoga session. I, I do Roman numerals and then I revisit it every quarter. I reprint it out and I put it again in my journal. Mm -hmm. Man, David, thank you for sharing that. I'm sure many people appreciate you breaking down the framework and how you break it down and organize your goals. That's something they can really take away. That's really practical. Hey, I want to do this um, so that we can let you get back to your meeting on time. Thank you for being so generous with your time. Just before we let you go, I'd love yes. to invite the audience to put in the chat just what you're appreciating, um, what, what you appreciate. And uh, it could be the greatest gift that David gave you today. Uh, I'd love for him to be able to see that before he steps into his next meeting. So if you could take a moment to put, in, put it in the chat, we'll give everybody just a minute or two to do that. And, uh, and David, we'll, to save your email and everything like that, We'll, we'll follow up for the resources that you really generously offered, and we'll make sure that gets to everybody who is uh, attending the call and wants to get those kind of resources. So thank you for that. I'm, and I I'm think you're on your phone, David, so we'll be sure to send all of these greatest gifts to you because I know it's kind of hard to read the chat. <laughs> in your phone. That would be great, and I am late, so yeah. if you don't mind, I'll bounce, but I love you guys. I'm, I'm really grateful to be helping other people, and so many people have helped me, so I wish everyone the best in all their endeavors. David, thanks Andrew, so much. Thanks for being such a gracious host. You're, you're excellent. Thank you, bud. That's all for this episode of The Triple Win. Thanks go out to Carol Housel and Jeff Tucker for everything they do to put these episodes together. And we want to remind everyone that you can find more resources, upcoming events, a link to our private Facebook group where the conversation continues in between these episodes with other professional property managers. All of that you can find at rbp.secondnature.com. Again, that's rbp.secondnature.com. And until next time, keep transforming what it means to be in professional property management by finding and applying your next triple win. 
We want it to be true that every time we see you, we see a better version of you and your business. With that, cheers. Cheers.